0: Now you may think of steamboats along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, but they were an important mode of transportation in Connecticut too, starting in New York and heading up to Hartford and back again. Journalist and author Eric Hesselberg writes that at one time, about 60 large steamboats ran between both cities on the Connecticut River between 1824 and 1931. The steamboat era peaked in the mid-1800s, dominating water traffic in America, becoming a place for leisure and entertainment too. Today where we live, we take a ride down this forgotten era with Hesselberg, whose new book, Night Boat to New York, chronicles the history of steamboats along the lower Connecticut River. Hesselberg's book is full of stories about Connecticut notables too, like steamboat pilot Captain George Parmalee from Haddam. We'll learn about him just ahead. You can join us, share a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Journalist Eric Hesselberg joins us now on Zoom. His first book, Night Boat to New York will be available July 15th. Eric, welcome to our show.
1: Uh, Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. That was a wonderful introduction, by the way. I love that. (laughs) Thank
0: you. And and Eric was the editor, or is the editor, of Voices on the River, a blog about the Connecticut River. And he was longtime editor of the 20 Shoreline newspapers and a former environmental reporter for the Middletown Press. So you've been covering the shoreline and the river for many years. So what drew you to the steamboat, Eric?
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, I... as you say, I wrote for, um, I, I was an environmental reporter for a number of years for the Middletown Press, and having grown up on the river in Hanham, I was always drawn to, you know, to Connecticut River stories. So whenever I had the opportunity for the press, and also I wrote for The Current for quite a bit, I was always doing a, um, you know, a river story, shad fisherman in particular. I love that story. And I guess I was always looking for stories, remnants, you might say, of the working river, Um, because today kind of the Connecticut River, as beautiful as it is, no one really makes a living from it anymore. It's a a kind of pleasure. It's a playground, uh, which is great. But, um, you know, I was interested in finding traces of the old working river. Um, I had actually, I had, after I was, uh kind of laid off as a lot of reporters were from my reporting uh gig um i had some time on my hand to reflect and i had been working uh on a project uh on the colonial port of middletown with ann farrow whom you probably know Mm -hmm. on really middletown's connection to the slave trade uh which is a fascinating topic in itself and uh that uh, uh we did a show on that an exhibit um, but one of the ideas that came out of that was that the Connecticut River really declined in uh, boat traffic after 1812 or so, you know, when, this, when, the, uh, um, when it no longer was trading with the, with the, the sugar islands of the Caribbean. Uh, what I found out, though, is that uh, really went with the coming of the steamboat in 1824 to the Connecticut River, A whole new chapter of river traffic begins, and a lot of the prosperity, which has continued in some respects to this day, uh, began with a steamboat. So it it appeared to be a much bigger uh, uh, influence than I had thought, and uh, I began to look into it.
0: And as a journalist, there's definitely some interesting institutions in our state that uh, you went for uh, to learn more about it to do your research, including uh, the Grizz, the Griswold Inn in Essex. So tell us about that.
1: Well, um, the Grizz is is kind of an is an institution, you know, the oldest continuously operated in, in America, I think they I think they say, um, I was lucky uh, in in Getting to know Jeff Paul before I started on this book, and we were talking um, a bit about how to tell uh, his story of the Griswold Inn, and of course, a big part of that uh, was his really remarkable collection of steamboat art and memorabilia. Um, so early on, I had I had I spent a lot of time with Jeff. Uh, and we didn't qu- quite move forward on the project we were talking about, but uh, I uh, decided to go ahead with something on steamboats. And Jeff said, "You know, Eric, you have access to any of uh, anything I know. I'd be glad to help you with." And of course, I got to see firsthand a lot of a uh, uh, prints of Connecticut River uh, uh, steamboats, and um, and he's just a wealth of information. So he was a a, a real help, I think, early on in keeping me motivated and and being a source of, of, of information and, of course, having almost a museum right, right there at the end.
0: Right. And there's also the Connecticut River Museum, the Connecticut Historical Society, and old clips from the press and The Current.
1: Yes. You know, I can't say enough good things about this. This book wouldn't have happened probably without The Current having digitized all their newspapers going back to... 1760 is it 64 perhaps which is really remarkable so um all the whole steamboat era including like a letter from robert fulton from 1815 i believe uh is is in the i was able to find so pretty much all the aspects of the of the origins and the evolution of steamboats could be found in the Hartford Current. Mm. Um, you
0: mentioned Fulton; yeah. he's the father of the steamboat.
1: Uh, Robert Fulton, yes, is, is is the he he developed the first commercially successful steamboat, uh, and that was launched on the Hudson River in 1807. There's a lot of debate of whether he. He used to be called, in, you know, in the, in the school books, he used to be called the inventor of the steamboat, and that's not really true. He was very successful in using other folks' technology, uh, and also he was very well-connected politically. Um, and, and as my mother used to say when I was growing up, Eric, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And, <laughs> and Robert Fulton uh, was partners with Robert Livingston, who was the chancellor of New York. He was the French ambassador under Jefferson and enormously connected. So he both had the money and and he also had the political connections to allow Fulton to obtain a monopoly on steamboats. And that you know helped Fulton get rich. So mm-hmm. Fulton deserves a lot of credit. I didn't get into in my book, arguing over who was the first uh, inventor, because we do have Connecticut, of course, has two, two men who were really fundamental in the early steamboat. One was John Fitch, who uh, was born in, in Windsor on the Connecticut River and launched one of the first steamboats in the 1780s. And then uh, Sa- Captain, Captain Samuel Morey, who was out of uh, um, New Hampshire, but originally from Connecticut. And and developed probably the technology for the paddle steamboat for the side wheel, the, the, the side wheel boat, which, um, which Fulton used uh, in his uh, early steamboat. Mm-hmm. So Connecticut played an important part in that development.
0: You're hearing Eric Hesselberg here on Where We Live. He's a journalist who's written a new book, Night Boat to New York, all about Connecticut's forgotten steamboat era. So what surprised you when you went down uh, into this, uh, I guess, this uh this whole of, of learning about uh, the steamboat era right like thinking about uh, how we might think of it as uh, steamboats as I mentioned earlier you know traveling down the Mississippi or more of a, a southern uh, tradition but the idea that this was a you know a common uh, um, site around that time from New York to Connecticut Eric
1: well yeah that and I think when I began to talk to people about steamboats on the Connecticut River, that their their first response was typically steamboats. We had steamboats here. I thought that was a Southern thing. And um, of course, uh, a lot of the image that we have of the steamboat comes from these big, grand Mississippi River boats with this elaborate jigsaw scroll uh, work, um, a style which became known as Steamboat Gothic. And it's interesting because we do have a riverboat on the Connecticut River uh, today called the Becky Thatcher, which the Connecticut Valley Railroad runs, and that's modeled on a southern on a Mississippi steamboat. Um, and yet we had steamboats here as well. They were more like an early ocean liner, except a little smaller. So they had kind of a very sharp prow. The rather than a stern wheel, they had big side wheels uh, and uh, very kind of long sleek lines. uh, And they were very fast. And one of the differences between the principal difference between a Mississippi boat and a Connecticut river boat is a Connecticut river boat really had to spend part of its time on on the ocean, uh, at least Long Island Sound. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't have one of those big uh, cumbersome flat bottom boats. Uh, because you had to deal with choppy water on the sound and sometimes actually heading out into the ocean a bit. So they had to be very seaworthy and then they had to be narrow enough to make its way up the Connecticut River, which uh, is fairly crooked, uh, you know, and and not and shallow in places. So they had to have kind of a unique design, which which uh, was developed. And in in their own way, they were very beautiful, kind of long, sleek uh, aristocrats, if you will.
0: Uh, some of the ones that I'm, I'm thinking of from your book, uh, The Steamboat City of Hartford, Granite State, and State of New York, all at one time owned by William Goodspeed from the Goodspeed Opera House, central part of this steamboat history. Tell us about him.
1: Uh, William Goodspeed is a, is a fascinating uh, character, and I think most of us know of the Goodspeed Opera House, and that is really a memento one of the really few kind of large mementos to the steamboat era. Um, Goodspeed, not a lot has been written about, and not a lot is known about Goodspeed. I was lucky to come across like an early typescript, which the um, East Haddam uh, Rathbun Library has, which is a description by a contemporary of Goodspeed, a few pages. And it's marvelous. And it really gave me kind of a, a little bit of a glimpse of who William Goodspeed was and one of the uh most vivid parts of this uh, uh, description was that Goodspeed if you notice at the back of the opera house today I say the back it was really the front in those days the side facing the river uh where the steamboats come up there's a little balcony probably 25 or 30 feet up in the air well that balcony uh has two French doors, uh, and that was uh, which allow you uh, onto the balcony. And that was Goodspeed's office. And once a steamboat pulls up, you'll, uh, you would see why that balcony was about 25 feet in the air, because it was just level with the pilot house of a steamboat. So Goodspeed could step out onto that balcony and have immediate communication with his pilots. And the story is (laughs) that he was usually yelling and uh, shaking his fist in the air because the steamboats often, because of fog or getting caught on a sandbar, were running late. And of course, time was money and Goodspeed was impatient that way. Um, And so I love that image of Goodspeed with uh, um, a a hat of some kind, usually, uh, and uh, a fur coat, probably. And out there, you know, talking to his captains. Mm-hmm. Um, the other aspect that I really enjoyed about Good, Goodspeed was, I think he was a sort of PT Barnum, uh, and he's a contemporary of PT Barnum. So Goodspeed was very interested in entertainment and bringing, you know, metropolitan talent up the river. And since he had his own fleet of steamboats, he could do that pretty easily. So he would hire. New York um, shows and bring them up the river with uh, with sets and everything um, but he would he would he would also do these kind of PT Barnum like um, exhibitions he once brought a 90 foot stuffed whale up the river on a steamboat and he had that displayed on the lawn in front of the Opera House and charged you know 50 cents to view it so that's kind of a very barn uh, barn a barnum uh gesture and uh so he was a real showman you know and uh and i that aspect of, of steamboats and their connection to entertainment and leisure really excited me
0: you got a chance to stand on that balcony i
1: i did have a chance to stand on the balcony lisa Hale i believe her name is who who handles uh, uh public relations i asked her i said could you take me up there i just want to be able to see and kind of experience what Goodspeed must have seen and it is a beautiful view it's a sweeping view of the river upstream and downstream and uh just gives you kind of a whole different perspective and and brought that period a little bit to life for me and I and, and East Haddam really I don't think has seen has more, more splendor and luxury than it did during the steamboat age. It's still uh, a, a beautiful, a pretty place, but East Haddam was something of a backwater until the steamboat uh, came, and East Haddam was very lucky in having deep water uh, to allow steamboats to to, to dock. So uh, Middletown just had one dock, and Middletown was a big city. East Haddam had two docks. They had an a lower landing, which was called Good Speeds, And they also had an upper landing uh, where another steamboat hotel was. Uh, and, and they had uh, an early opera house, which predates the Goodspeed, called the uh, Maplewood Conservatory. Uh, it was a woman's school, a woman's music school, and they performed operas. Um, so, uh, and then the Good Speed. So it was really a cultural center
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we head to break, I had mentioned, I I believe you said that you're a Haddam native. There was a Captain Parmalee, one of the local steam pilots. Tell us about him.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting, Lucy. I'm I'm in actually at my old house where I grew up. Um, It's better. There's a better Internet connection here. So um, (laughs) but if I walk through the woods, if I walk uh, west, I guess, excuse me, east toward the river in about five minutes in about two minutes, I'll be at, I'll be on the river or close to the river and I'll be right near where Captain Parmalee's house was. What is interesting, of course, is that when I was growing up and I was a kid, I never knew that that was Captain George Parmalee's house, right, he was a, he was a neighbor of mine. He would have been long dead, but his his uh, descendants were there. Um, so when I found out a little bit more about Captain Parmalee and I was able to talk to some relatives about him, I just got very excited by this fascinating uh, steamboat captain. And he really was kind of a local legend because one, he lived to be 102. So he was even out and about at 80 uh, in his 90s. And he had all these marvelous stories of the Connecticut River. here's a guy who was born the year the Marquis de Lafayette came up the river on a steamboat. Parmley was born in 1824. So kids, you know, around the First World War, were able to talk to George Parmley, this legend of the river, who could take people back to the Civil War days, who could take people back to the, you know, the 1850s, and he had one story after another. So there's this uh, uh, image I I've I've heard of everywhere Parmley went, he had like these school kids chasing after him to hear one of his stories, and uh, and he had a lot. So. Uh, Yes, George Parmalee. So that was a a very nice aspect of being able to find uh, uh, people and places that were almost a part of my childhood and allowing me to kind of rediscover uh, my area and my childhood and um, a part of the river that I was not familiar with.
0: That was another part of the the book that surprised me. You mentioned uh, Marquis de Lafayette, this former major general in the American Revolution, steamed down from Hartford in 1824. (laughs) What was your reaction when you uncovered Uh, that?
1: I, You know, probably, well, Lafayette, it's hard for us to imagine the fanfare everywhere he traveled. And he was a rock star. There was really no one today that could, comp- that could compare to the celebrity of the Marquis de Lafayette. So I don't think there has ever been that many people gathered to see a public figure as there was when Lafayette, uh, came down. He was traveling around the United States as part of, uh, I guess the 50th anniversary of the, uh, American revolution. <clears throat> and, um, He made a stop, he came up to Boston, and then he took a carriage from Boston to Hartford. And the story is that it rained heavily. He had planned to come down to Middletown quickly by carriage, but it rained so heavily, the roads were rutted and washed out and muddy. So the steamboat, which had just arrived coincidentally on the river that year, 1824, uh the captain was very eager to uh put his steamboat uh uh, to allow his steamboat to be used to take uh lafayette down and lafayette of course was traveling with an entourage that included uh, his son his secretary uh very elegant uh, men and ladies and uh the steamboat was beautifully decorated with flags and banners And crowds lined both banks of the river and he steamed down in this boat and they had a band on board. So there was music playing. And, uh, you know, it just really the whole image of that in the early steamboat really excited me. And, you know, what's interesting, of course, is people did cheer, I imagine, but they, they also waved in a very dignified way. Ladies waved handkerchiefs, apparently. That was what you did. And men, to show their appreciation would throw their hats in the air so that's as the steamboat passed uh, you would have all these ladies elegantly dressed um, and, you know waving handkerchiefs and he briefly made a very brief stop in Middletown something like a half hour where he was whisked around in a carriage wherever he went he had a carriage uh, someone uh would have a carriage for him with four white horses and that was kind of the trademark so he sped around in that carriage in Mm -hmm. Middletown and uh crowds just tried to press close and get a get a glimpse of him but it was really as I say he was the rock star of the era and it was just (laughs) a, a marvelous marvelous uh event
0: You're hearing Eric Hesselberg here on Where We Live. He's a journalist whose new book, Night Boat to New York, takes readers on a ride back to the steamboat era along the Connecticut River in the 19th century. His book comes out July 15th. Coming up, we'll continue talking with him and learn about some other Connecticut notables, including Mark Twain. What questions do you have? You can join us or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. The steamboats that traveled on the Connecticut River in the 19th century were described as riverboats, quote, long, shallow, and graceful, and painted as brilliantly and fantastically as an Indian shell, with her bow just leaning up from the surface of the stream, her cut water throwing off a curved and transparent sheet from either side, her white awnings, her magical speed, and the gay spectacle of a 1,000 well-dressed people on her open decks. I know of nothing prettier. Journalist Eric Hesselberg included that description in his new book, Night Boat to New York, about Connecticut's forgotten steamboat era. Now, some of the fa- fanciest were 275-foot steamers, like City of Hartford, which made runs between Hartford and New York before and after the Civil War. Hesselberg writes steamboats, quote, gleaming white in the darkness past each other at midnight at the mouth of the river, saluting one another with their steam whistles, one long and one short blast. Now, you can see a drawing of the city of Hartford steamboat on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Eric Hesselberg is my guest today. Again, his new book, Night Boat, New York. Eric, describe the inside of these steamers. I understand some were, were very luxurious.
1: Uh, <clears throat> I think there was a, a kind of luxury inside a steamboat that uh, we, we can hardly imagine today. And one of the the reason for that was um, steamboats originally for were for the wealthy, and so they they had to look sharp and beautiful. And and but but more and more, steamboat became something that even you know middle class folks and even working class folks could could enjoy for a for a mo- nominal fee. Uh, so just like later movie palaces gave kind of the average person a sense of luxury. So the steamboat much earlier was designed to do that, was designed to kind of take you to another place and be a kind of, uh, I think one of the descriptions was a fairy palace of the imagination. So uh, you had uh, crystal chandeliers, you had these, uh, as long as the boat was, was uh, something called the Grand, uh, the Grand Saloon. And this would be a carpeted hall with chandeliers and beautiful Rococo designs on the wall. Uh, and it would be as long as the boat. So a couple hundred feet long, this big open hall. Uh, then you had uh, a beautiful dining room uh, where you know, as I said, uh, where people of all social strata might get together and enjoy a meal. Um, And then, of course, perhaps the most exciting part was to be able to go outside uh, on the promenade deck uh, and, and enjoy the view as you steamed up the Connecticut River or across Long Island Sound. It's important to say, too, also that these boats often were were traveling in the afternoon and at night, except when there was a, a weekend excursion. So you would get on the boat in Hartford, say at five o'clock in the evening, um, have a nice meal in Middletown. Middletown is, was when they began to serve the meal. Uh, and then you would steam down in the darkness uh, and up Long Island Sound at night, arriving in New York the next morning. Uh, so it was an overnight trip. Um, so, uh, but part of that was, and perhaps the most delightful aspect was, was, was getting up on the deck, uh, and watching the scenery go by and enjoying conversation with your friends. Cause people knew each other, uh, and, and then you also met new people too. So there was a whole social, a ritual to the steamboat, which I, uh, which I thought was marvelous.
0: Now, you can join our conversation about Connecticut steamboat history, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So this era that we're talking about, um, also through the Gilded Age, so would you say these were also a symbol of excess, Eric? Uh,
1: certainly the later steamboats, you know, uh, I, uh, were... were uh, a symbol of excess and uh there is a lot of a kind of a greek tragedy in the steamboat era in in that i think uh, one historian uh described that that the steamboat was like the dinosaur which waxed to its greatest proportions before its ex- extinction <laughs> and the steamboats on long island sound uh, got bigger and bigger and bigger three four hundred feet and they got more and more lavish uh, uh, offering you know uh, all sorts of uh, um, food and and concessions and music uh, and you know it seemed like that happened just before things started to go to go south and 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 we had uh, this is a time too when when you know many, americans certainly in the cities were living in in real poverty so it's certainly the steamboat was at, at a time less so on the connecticut river but certainly the long island boats uh of which connecticut river boats were a part of that that system uh they became and kind of an emblem of excess you know like uh um diamond jim brady you know was kind of the the uh symbol of the year and i think his he was quoted as saying and he loved the steamboat of course uh, he was quoted as saying hell i'm rich now it's time to have some fun
0: (laughs) (laughs) one of your chapters uh, titled a picturesque valley um, really gets into how you know the steamboat was not just a mode of transportation but a a way to commune with nature and i'm wondering if you can talk about that
1: uh lucy i have to say that this was perhaps one of the most fascinating chapters for me to write, and, and uh, probably if I explored this again, I think you could do a whole book on, on the steamboat and its influence on uh, how we view nature. And it's hard to us for hard, hard to us to imagine that the steamboat was a very new way to experience nature. Um, first of all, before that, only wealthy people went out, you know, in the countryside to appreciate pretty scenery. Uh, And they did so in a carriage, and then they might walk in the country. So um, before the steamboat, a certain mode of viewing nature called the picturesque journey uh, was kind of codified in England, um, where you would view nature in a certain way. And you even had something called a clawed glass, which was like a little mirror, which reflected a particular scene and gave it a kind of gloomy cast to it. Uh, And you would look at that. Of course, this is before the camera. You would look at that and you would kind of frame these pretty views that you thought were something that an artist might paint these motifs. So that was before the steamboat. So the steamboat, once that came along in the 1820s, this kind of picturesque travel movement merged uh, with the steamboat and something called the fashionable tour became very popular. And that was, began on the Hudson river, which was noted for its scenery, uh, but then migrated to the Connecticut too. Uh, So, one of the selling points of a trip on this steamboat was, uh, was a chance to view uh, pretty scenery and, uh, and then to be able to kind of talk about it with your friends and maybe write about it in your diary. Um, and, and as I was saying about a new way to experience, uh, I think the steamboat, you know, moving along at about 10 miles an hour at a steady uh, clip, a very smooth, not much noise, So uh, the traveler got to experience nature in a way that he or she was moving through nature and it was kind of changing and unfolding around him. You know, it was a kind of constantly shifting panorama. Um, So I really, I think, was fascinated by that notion of the steamboat giving folks really a new platform, if you will, to view The natural world, you know, today we have something called ecotourism. And we kind of think of that as growing out of the environmental movement, which it did to a degree. But we had people doing essentially ecotourism in the 18 late 1820s, the early 1830s. So it's not a it's not a new idea.
0: So these were leisurely journeys. I think you mentioned, what, 12 hours from New York to Hartford. But how dangerous were these steamboats? Were the collisions happen, fires?
1: Uh, they could be. You know, one of the things that I, 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 I was writing a lot about, the beauties of the steamboat. And then I had to, you know, remind myself that, gosh, these were inherently dangerous vessels, you know, with, a, with boilers Uh, and uh, steam, lots of steam under pressure and boilers did explode. You know, there's a funny story about Robert Fulton trying to sell, trying to get backing from Napoleon to build a steamboat when he was in his early days, early 1800s. And he tells Napoleon, he explains to them what the steamboat uh, uh, is like and explains the, the boiler system and how this, energy will be harnessed to turn a paddle wheel. And Napoleon shakes his head and says, you mean to tell me that you propose to move a boat by lighting a bonfire under the deck? And uh, <laughs> full says, yes, he goes, I don't want to hear anything more about this. And so Napoleon apparently passed on the steamboat. And then years later, seeing his success, he kind of kicked himself and saying, geez, I should have listened to Fulton. But anyway, Eric, we
0: had a we had a question from a listener sure. on, on Facebook when we talk about some of these Connecticut steamboats. You know, where were they built? Who built them?
1: A lot of the boats. Uh, there were a few boats that were built uh, on the Connecticut River. Goodspeed built a few small boats, but these were very large and you needed a big shipyard. So most of them were built in uh, New York shipyards. Um, on the East River often. So the really big boats, New York kind of had perfected uh, the steamboat design and construction. So most of these boats were would have been built in New York.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned Mark Twain earlier. Uh, you went looking for his connection to Connecticut steamboats. What did you find, Eric?
1: Well that was that was surprising because I expected to find a lot. You know, he is, in a sense, the emblem of the steamboat in the Mississippi River. And he was even a river pilot himself in his early days. And he wrote about that in Life on the Mississippi, which is a marvelous book, by the way. Um, but I could not find Twain mentioning the Connecticut River or steamboats in, in any way. And in fact, when he did mention travel in his diary in the years he was living in Hartford, it's often taking the train from Hartford down to New Haven. Then he might've taken the steamboat from New Haven to New York. Now, Twain, of course, was a very modern person. And so he wanted the fastest way possible. The train was faster than the steamboat. So he usually took the train to New York. However, I did come across... Uh, uh, a clipping in a, in a library of a, uh, a steamboat captain talking about meeting Mark Twain in the late 1800s or perhaps even 1900, just as he was about to leave Hartford, um, talking about a trip that Twain made up, uh, made from New York to Hartford. Uh, and the uh, steamboat captain describes uh, Twain asking to be awakened at midnight so he could see the moonlight on the water. Uh, And then Twain, uh, I think a steward goes to fetch Twain. uh, He uh, is taken up to the pilot house, and the pilot, knowing who it was, offers Twain uh, the wheel, and, and Twain declines. He was older then, and he said, I no longer have a hand for it. But it nonetheless, he he appreciated, took a look around the boat, seemed to feel very uh, comfortable, and then he pulled a chair out onto the hurricane deck, which is the topmost deck of the steamboat, lit a pipe and smoked his pipe. And the story is, uh, a young steward was, uh, you know, was kind of hovering near Twain to make sure that he. If he needed anything, he could get it. If he needed a drink or something, he could get it for him or if he needed a light. And at a certain point, Twain drops his pipe and the young fellow picks it up quickly, hands it back to Twain. And the story is that Twain reached into his pocket and gave the boy a silver dollar. (laughs) So that was the the only real Twain anecdote I could find. Um, And it's told differently by different people, but um, it did give me this marvelous image Mm. Of, of Mark Twain steaming up the river on the deck. I believe it was the Middletown, which was one of the later steamboats, probably in the 1890s, you know, just as uh, just before he left mm-hmm. uh, Hartford forever.
0: You're hearing journalist Eric Hesselberg here on Where We Live as we learn about Connecticut's steamboat history, his new book, Night Boat to New York. That's what we're learning about today. We'll be at back after a short break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today, we've been learning about the forgotten steamboat era on the Connecticut River with my guest, Eric Hesselberg, journalist and author of the new book, Night Boat to New York. Now, another important figure you wrote about is Nicholas Jackson. Uh, this was a harrowing story. What can you tell us about him?
1: Um, Lucy, uh, the, the Nicholas Jackson story really, uh, you know, it struck me and, and I think kind of opened up a window to the steamboat and especially African-Americans on the steamboat that I, I hadn't known about. I first came across that when I wrote a story uh, on the Granite State for my blog uh, and and it was about the burning of the Granite State and and the the Granite State uh, was you know one of Goodspeed's uh, most celebrated boats. It was it was about 275 feet long, gorgeous, narrow, uh, sharp prow, lovely boat. Um, and it but it was a, it was famous for of a, a fire which occurred in in 1883 as the boat was steaming up the river. Uh, it caught fire just before it docked in. Uh, in, in at Goodspeed Landing. And this was very early in the morning. They managed to get the boat to the dock uh, and most of the passengers, there weren't a lot, there were about 50 passengers and crew on board and most were able to get off, but a few weren't. Uh, and the boat burned uh, her bow and stern line and the boat, because it was windy, uh was was blown back out into the river and blown across to the opposite bank where it kind of grounded on a sandbar leaving the few remaining folks maybe 20 or 30 or, or you know 10 or 15 or 20 to jump in the water and swim and famously they were mentioned in the um you know in all the newspaper a a, a honeymoon a bridal couple were on their honeymoon and and the story was they went over uh, the side in arm and arm uh but the bride died uh there were uh it didn't make it there were a couple other people as well but one of the st- i found a little bit of mention to nicholas jackson uh and described at the time in the language of the day of course as the negro cook uh and nicholas jackson was the cook on the steamboat uh who um apparently drowned he for some reason he wasn't able to get off he maybe was not a strong swimmer but anyway uh he jumped in and didn't make it uh his body was found the next day and then in uh, a, an article uh by the new york herald which was one of the best papers of the day run by Nick, um james gordon bennett uh the the new york uh herald Called attention to the fact that Jackson, when when the crew was trying to bring his body ashore, they were stopped by town selectmen who were a, who who were worried that if Jackson was brought ashore, the town would be responsible for his burial cost, and they didn't want to pay it. And you know, you think that we're thinking that this was in the 1880s, but undoubtedly. Racism was 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 still going on. There was certainly more acceptance, but they weren't going to pay uh, for his burial until it could be tr- determined how he died, and I guess that would determine who paid for it. So, in in a really grisly scene, the the Herald described that Jackson's body was left in the water, tied to a rope, while the the medical examiner. And I believe a small jury convened and discussed this and determined who was going to pay for his Mm -hmm. burial. Um, Now, finally, he was allowed to be brought ashore. And we don't really know 100% what happened next. We believe that he would have been buried uh, at the most prominent cemetery, which was the uh, 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 Riverside Cemetery, which is up on the hill overlooking the river. It's a beautiful spot where the Episcopal Church is today. But he would have been buried in what was called a pauper's grave or a pauper's corner with no headstone. Uh, So we don't really know where he is. We can kind of imagine that where he might have been. But anyway, so his story, what I found out is more and more is that African-Americans were really the backbone of the steamboat economy, Uh, and they're almost never mentioned uh, in, in any contemporary account, except as in the case of Jackson, when there's some accident mm-hmm. and they are injured or died. And that's when you see these names of, of various workers. And, but African-Americans filled the most important positions. They were dock workers, often called roustabouts. They were stewards. They were, uh, so they carry, they were waiters, for example, Uh, so they, uh, really made the steamboats go. They weren't allowed to have any of the higher positions, unfortunately. Um, you know, you couldn't be a captain or you couldn't be, uh, um, about the highest Mm -hmm. position would have been a steward. But, um, so this was, so Jackson became an, 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 uh, an important story for me because it offered a window into this, uh, uh, economy of the, of the steamboat, Mm -hmm. uh, which was very which which was carried on with okay. with the railroads you know mm-hmm. and 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 George Pullman and the Pullman car I'm glad, I'm
0: glad you brought up the railroads yeah. and that is an important story to highlight. I'm glad you did in your book. Uh, um, but I want, before we run out of time, when we think about how this era ended on the Connecticut River, you write about that day, October 31st, 1931, uh, steamboats becoming obsolete thanks to the railroad and the automobile. What can you tell us about the crowd that gathered to wave goodbye to the steamboat Hartford?
1: Well, you know, that's somewhat of a sad story because you would have expected you know hundreds there waiting to wave goodbye for the last trip but i was surprised to find that there weren't all that many because so so it's 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 telling us that steamboats were already kind of out of date by that time and only you know older folks who who love the steamboat kind of gathered and there was just a handful uh, I think uh, a, a tiny, it was described as a tiny knot of people who were there to wave goodbye. And on board the, the the Hartford, when it steamed away, they had sold a lot of tickets. They expected a couple hundred people. And once again, only 40 or 50 folks showed up and took that final trip. So it was a really bittersweet voyage down the river. Uh, I tried to really research uh, that, Trip and find out, you know who was on board, and see if I could kind of bring that, uh, you know, to 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 life somewhat. Because for me, it was very poignant uh, that final trip on October thirty first, and what uh, what happened next, of course, the Middletown was or the Hartford had a companion boat to Middletown, so the Hartford went down on October 31st, Halloween. Oh, that's the other thing, too. They had, you know, Halloween decorations aboard the, in, in the dining room when they all gathered together. And um, the next night, the Middletown went down with no passengers and no freight. And they took the boat down. They never made such good time. And it was said that, you know, all the crew, to get back to Hartford, had to take the train. <laughs> so there was no way to get back other than the train.
0: Oh, well, Eric, it's been a pleasure to hear from you about your first book, again, Night Bo- Boat to New York, out in July, mid-July. Uh, what a pleasure to hear from you, uh, to, to, to let us know about the history, this forgotten era. Uh, we really appreciate your time today.
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Lucy, and a, th- a big thank you to your listeners as well. I enjoyed speaking with you very much.
0: I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat pa- have a great weekend.
1: They all claim it's just for the sight. But just the same, they travel at night. I asked a fellow and his cute little pet, How is the water? And he answered, It's wet. So tell me why. They all take the night boat for Albany. We have the train for the jaw. Why do they all take the night boat for Albany? That's what's puzzling me. They all claim. Just for the sight, but just the same, they travel at night. They play the searchlight on the shore when they float. <laughs> they ought to play the searchlight right on the boat. So tell me, walk to the old big knife over all day and grab the next day. That's a very beautiful.